Good afternoon, everyone. Um, could you please open your Bibles to the Old Testament in the uh, book of Exodus, chapter 20, beginning with verse 1 and ending through verse 15? Uh, and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the surgeoner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. This is the word of the Lord. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome again to this gathering of New Hope Fellowship. Thank you, Timothy, for reading God's word to us. Let's, uh, let's pray before we consider the words that have been written, read in our hearing, these words breathed out by God himself. Our Father, we're gathered in your presence today, conscious of the fact that we, uh, we have nothing to bring you. We bring ourselves. And we belong to you, Lord. The breath in our lungs is your breath. We've been breathing it our whole lives, but it's yours. Just as all that we have is yours. We ask, Father, that you would keep us from holding back what is yours from you. Lord, don't let us hold back our lives from you. Don't let us hold back words of praise. Don't let us hold back anything that we have from you. But instead, we ask that you would shape us into a people that entrust you with our whole selves, all our possessions, all our time. And Lord, we ask that because of the gospel, we would be motivated to serve you and not ourselves all of our lives. Teach us. Open up our eyes so that we could see wondrous things in your word, in your law today, as we study this eighth commandment. And we ask that in studying it, we would be pushed, directed, driven to the cross of Jesus Christ, where we find our sins forgiven and we find full acceptance with you. In Jesus' name, we ask all of this. Amen. 
we live in a world where theft happens. And it happens a lot, doesn't it? Theft happens a lot. That's why all of us need to constantly be creating new passwords for all of our accounts and keep track of all those passwords somehow. It's why we have to memorize our PIN numbers and that's why half the products at Walgreens are locked up behind lock and key these days. That's why many of you perhaps have installed those ring cameras on your front porch. No matter how nice and quiet your neighborhood might be, you know that theft happens. Theft is a reality. It's, it's expected. We, we just try to limit our vulnerability to it. <laughs> we know it's going to happen. But in some cases, theft is not just expected, it's, it's normalized. Some forms of theft are widely accepted as okay, maybe even by some of us. In fact, some forms of theft might not even feel like stealing to us at all. And that's why this eighth commandment, you shall not steal, applies to all of us. It's why this commandment has implications for all of our lives, all of us, no matter how, no matter whether or not we think we are thieves. I don't know how many of you have ever watched Doctor Who. It's a, it's a British sci-fi program. My, uh, my, my, my kids used to love this series when they were smaller. It's about a mysterious person who travels through time and space in this thing, this, this, this blue box. Doctor Who travels through time and space in this thing. It's an English uh, uh, police booth. It's unassuming. It's small. It doesn't look like a time machine. It doesn't look like an intergalactic transportation vessel. But when you open up the door and you look inside, what you find is a vast room. Look at this. This is what it looks like inside. It's called the TARDIS, by the way, this, this machine is. It's so much bigger and complex on the inside than it looks on the outside. And each of these Ten Commandments is like that. It's like that. It's much bigger on the inside and much more complex and much more amazing than it gives the impression of when you just glance at it quickly. You shall not steal. It's just forcible words, right? And, and, and we can glance at that and say, I got that. Okay, fine. I won't steal. I'll try not to. But, but when we take the time to, to open the doors, look inside, what we find is that these words speak to many, many hidden corners of our lives. Remember, God gave these Ten Commandments to his people right after he had just liberated them from, from Egypt, where they had been enslaved for 400 years. Right? So he gives them the, these, these Ten Commandments, or, or, or these Ten Words, they're called sometimes, and he gives them to, to, to his people to show this nation this newly freed nation, what it looks like to live as free people. Because when they were in Egypt, their freedom was stolen. Their dignity was stolen. Their labor was stolen. Even their baby boys were stolen from them. Their lives had been scarred by theft. But now they're free. And the Lord wants each of them to live a life that's free from theft, so that they no longer uh, experience and are victims of it, but also so that they would no longer perpetrate it. Because stealing, God tells us, 
no matter who it's from, no matter whether it's from the good guys or the bad guys, whether it's from your, your neighbor or whether it's from the man, quote-unquote, stealing, no matter who it's from, harms people and it dishonors God. It, it's a failure to love God and it's a failure to love our neighbor. And so the Lord wants his people to, to embrace a new way of life that's characterized not by taking, but by giving. You see, that's, that's the positive side of this commandment. Each of these negative commandments that says, don't do this, has a positive side. God doesn't just want his people to, to abstain from taking what's not theirs. He wants us to live generously. The opposite of stealing is, isn't not stealing. The opposite of stealing is giving. It's giving to meet the needs of people. And, and interestingly, in God's wisdom, when we give to meet the needs of people, we end up protecting them from the temptation to steal, to meet their own needs. We all know what it means to steal, right? I like to start by defining terms sometimes, but I don't need to. I mean, we all know what stealing means, right? You take what doesn't belong to you, what's not rightfully yours. It's simple enough, but we need to open up the, the, the lid on this commandment or, or, or open up the door on this TARDIS to look inside and see more carefully what theft amounts to. And we're going to do that with three questions, all right? Three questions. How do we steal? Why do we steal? And how do we heal? Or how do we stop stealing, basically? So how do we steal? What does theft look like? in the lives of people like us, lots of ways. We steal in lots of humans, all right? I'm not, I'm not judging you. I'm not accusing you of being a thief. But humans have found many ways to steal, many stealthy ways, right? Steal, steal and stealth, they're, they're related words, right? We found many stealthy, sneaky ways to take what's not ours. More recently, technology has opened up a whole new world of ways to steal. Technology has made it easier to, to take someone's identity, by taking their personal information, right? Technology has made it easier to plagiarize. That is, that is steal someone's words or their ideas in order to pass them off as your own. But long before these technological advances, we have always been good at finding creative ways to make other people's things our things. Whether it's nations stealing land through colonization, or it's politicians misappropriating funds through embezzlement. Humans have been stealing in big ways and small ways for a long, long time. And the, the Bible is wise to this. The Bible speaks to it. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament address many of our creative ways for, for taking what's not rightfully ours. Gonna, I want to show you. Let's look at just a, a few of these examples, a sampling of some of what the Bible identifies as theft. And by the way, as we look at this list, notice how many of these forms of theft that happen to be mentioned in the Bible, how many of them are, are perpetrated by individuals, but also by institutions, by companies and, and corporations. Overcharging is one form of theft that the Bible identifies. In Hosea 12, 7, the one who, 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 uses, uh, uh, who uses manipulation and deceit overcharge, to charge more than what is fair, more than what is expected for services or for a product. Hosea says, 
that person oppresses others. So, so theft through, uh, through, through, through overcharging is actually a way that we oppress one another. Withholding payment from workers is another way that the Bible says people have been stealing for a long time. Leviticus 19.13 says, You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. In other words, if you've got money to pay your workers, pay them. If you don't have money to pay your workers, they shouldn't be your workers. And, and, and what, what, what the, 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 that, that passage tells us is that withholding is robbing. And in James, he calls that oppression as well. Another way that we rob is through extortion. Extortion. Um, in Luke 3.14, Jesus uh, confronts Roman soldiers for the ways that they were extorting. That is, they were using threats and power to get money unjustly from people. So the Roman soldiers would, would threaten and make false accusations against people in order to get money from them. But Roman soldiers aren't the only ones who extorted in Jesus' day. Tax collectors also extorted and religious leaders extorted and continue to extort even to this day. In Luke 20 and Mark 12, Jesus accuses some religious leaders, scribes in particular, of, he says, you're devouring widows' houses. You're, 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 you're approaching people who are the most vulnerable, who have the least, and through threats and guilt and manipulation, you're getting them to donate exorbitant amounts to support you in the name of serving God. Human trafficking is another form of theft that the Bible identifies. Enslavement in the Bible is often referred to as human stealing. Look what Exodus 21.6 says. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. And in 1 Timothy 1 Enslavers, again, are called human stealers, man stealers. Pilfering from employers is another form of theft that the Bible identifies. Petty theft, right? Titus 2 instructs servants not to, to commit petty theft from their masters, right? And this speaks to us as employees to not be taking things, petty, you know, petty, just stealing from the people we work for, whether it's stealing time or stealing whatever. I heard a joke recently about a, a guy whose who's, uh, young son got caught stealing uh, classroom equipment from school, school supplies. And the dad said, you can't steal school supplies. If you need stuff, just tell me. I can get it from work, he said. I, I'll, I'll, I'll get it for you. I'll steal it for you. These are, these are, this is just a sampling of how the Bible calls out some of the ways that we steal from each other. And we could list many, many more ways that are common today, from false advertising to other uh, deceptive sales practices to insurance fraud, which is a big problem. Um, some of us have read, perhaps, about COVID-19 relief money fraud that's happened. And there are a lot of smaller ways, too, that are much more respectable, quote-unquote, <laughs> like not reporting all your income to the IRS not filing your taxes properly. How about, how about this? How about cheating on school projects and exams? 
cheating on school projects and exams. Aren't you taking a score, taking a result that you're not entitled to by deception? Or illegally downloading that copyrighted material? Aren't you, aren't you taking for free something that you were supposed to pay for? Or how about misusing that company expense account? Or, or even spending hours scrolling through your social media feed when, when you're supposed to be, when you're getting paid to work. And, and I know that this is just kind of a list, it's a random list of some of the ways that we steal, that humans steal, but, but I'm listing it just to show the magnitude, the far-reaching applications of this, the sheer magnitude of the ways that we can find to make other people's things our things. And you can perhaps think of more. And my goal here is not to be petty, but my goal is to let God's, let God's law search us and show us how we, we right here might be willing to take what is not rightfully ours. So that we'll see that God's command is not just for the, the shoplifter, the mugger, the con man, the predatory lender. It's not just for people that we consider and label thieves, but it's for us. It's for us. And, and if none of what I've said to this point even touches you yet, consider this. We don't just steal by taking what is not rightfully ours. We steal by keeping back what God says is rightfully his. And we steal by keeping back from others what God gave us to share with others. You see, stealing isn't just about taking. It's about keeping back, amassing holding for ourselves what God has given us for others. I had a lot to say about that, too much, in fact, so I've left it out for, for another day. For now, I'll just share this one, these words from um, a man who was a, a pastor in, in, fourth century, in the 4th century in the city of Constantinople. John Chrysostom served a wealthy congregation in Constantinople. And he spoke to that wealthy church and said these words, and this is not unique, he's, he's said these kinds of things often, but here's one quote from him. He says, but I beg you, remember this without fail, that not to share our own wealth with the poor is theft from the poor and deprivation of their means of life. We do not possess our own wealth, but theirs. You see what he's saying? To not give when we can, is to steal from those who need. And the, the, the logic works this way. If it's all God's, everything I have is God's, but he has given it to me more than I need, then he intends me to give that to someone else. And if I fail to do that, then I'm actually robbing that person. And if I hold on to that, I'm actually holding on to that person's possessions. It's like if you're, if you're a little kid and your dad says, here's, here's some money, go split this uh, between you and your siblings. And you say, got it, dad. And you keep it to yourself. You hide it under your mattress. Or, or your employer gives you a check and says, um, please distribute, please, please hand this over to um, our client. And you say, got it. And you use it to buy a new entertainment system. We're, we're, you're using the employer's money or your dad's money, based on you know, whichever metaphor you choose, but you're also using the money that was meant for this other person, whether it's the client or your siblings. 
The church fathers, it's interesting, you look back at these 5th uh, century, 6th century church fathers like Chrysostom, they, they were so consistent on this. They were so clear on this. They all say the same thing. It's, it's interesting. I'm looking for, 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 for I found so many statements like this one by various different church fathers, and, and yet it seems we perhaps have, have lost this concept along the way. Our possessions are God's, and he, he gives them to us, yes, to supply our needs and for us to enjoy them, but also to meet the needs of others. We, this, we are, in fact, in God's perfect economy, we are, if we have more than we need, we are his way of providing others' needs. We are the answers to the prayers of people who need and are asking God to provide. In any case, we can steal in so many ways, so many ways. So we got to go to the next question. Why do we steal? Why? So many reasons, right? So many reasons to steal. We, we can steal because of greed on the one hand, or we can steal because of fear. We're afraid. We're afraid that our needs are not going to be met. Someone might steal because they have a legitimate need that they're trying to fill in an illegitimate way. Someone else might steal just for the thrill of it. It's exciting. So many reasons. But underneath all of these reasons to steal, and there are many, I think there are at least two basic causes. Two basic reasons we steal. One is we're tempted to steal when we don't fear God and when we don't trust God. We will take what is not rightfully ours when we don't fear God or when we don't trust God. The Tenth Commandment, if you remember, begins with these words. All the Tenth Commandments, I meant, I meant to say, all of them begin with these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Before God even starts listing these commandments, he says this. Why does he say it? At very least, he wants to remind his people of something. He wants to remind his people of who he is. And he wants to remind his people that he is, he is to be feared and he is to be trusted. God is saying, I am to be feared and I can be trusted. Right? He's saying, remember what I did for you? I, I, did you see what I did? Have you heard what I've done in Egypt? The power that was displayed? The plagues I sent? The miracles I performed, the way I brought judgment down on my people's oppressors. He said, I'm not to be trifled with. You've seen what my power looks like. You see how I act on behalf of the victim, on the behalf of the needy. You've seen the power, you've seen the righteousness, the justice. I am to be feared, he is saying. But he also is saying with those words, you, you, you know, I, I did this all for you. <laughs> I did it all for you. The plagues, the miracles, all of it to give you, my people, the freedom that you long for, to rescue you so, so you can trust me. You can trust me. You can trust me to care for you. You can trust me to guide you and provide everything you need. He, he's saying you're not alone left to your own resources. 
I'm your God. I'm your God. He's saying he's to be feared. That means he's to be respected and, and obeyed and revered. But he's also to be trusted. And that's important because consider, consider the reasons, the deeper reasons, why we might take what's not ours. I suspect that for some of us, it's because we're not fearing God or we're not trusting God. Or maybe both. Our theft is rooted either in a, in a failure to, to take seriously his, his authority. We don't take seriously his commands. We trifle with him. We act as if he doesn't see me or he doesn't care. Or, or it's rooted in a failure to trust his goodness, to trust that he will care for us. He'll provide for us in every way. We don't need to steal because we have God who owns everything, who promises to provide. So if, if, we're, if we're not fearing him, we're going to take what's not ours, and we're going we're to think, what's the big deal? Who cares? What's the worst that could happen? But if we're not trusting him, then we're going to take, and we're going to think, I'm, I'm just doing what I need to. I'm, I'm trying to protect my interests. I'm trying to protect my family's interests. But underneath all of that, there's a heart that says, I can't trust you for what I need, Lord. And, and, and what you've given me is not enough. A couple of years ago, Wegmans, the, um, the supermarket chain, they rolled out a, a, a mobile app that let you scan and pay for groceries while you were shopping. Did any of you use this? You, you, could, you could skip the checkout line and just use this app to scan and pay electronically and take your groceries and go home. Scan and go. It was super convenient. But after less than three years, they, they shut down the app, claiming that it cost them too much money because it led to rampant shoplifting. You see, you see, folks would, would take the scan and go app and they skip the scan and just go, right? They just go home with, with lots of free groceries. And I read that and I thought, well, what did you expect, Wegmans? <laughs> what did you expect? But it also made me think about how, how we might rationalize that kind of theft. Because I'm, I'm guessing that many different kinds of people were scamming the scan and go app. How do we rationalize that? You, you can imagine some folks thinking, who cares? Free stuff. Stores overcharge anyway. I'm going to take what I can. They shouldn't have been so stupid to let me come in here and take what I can. It, it, and that, that's, a, that's a lack of fear of God, folks. That's, that's no fear of God. The, the one who says, you're, it's a failure to fear the God who says, your theft is an offense to me. And although Wegmans looks like an a, a impersonal monster of a corporation. No, you're actually stealing from your neighbor. You're stealing from your neighbor. But can't you also imagine others thinking, I don't want to steal, but, but this is a chance for me to save some money. And I need to save money because life is expensive and, 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 and times have been difficult. And have you seen the price of eggs lately? But underneath that, there's a heart that doesn't trust God to provide. So if we're not fearing the Lord, we're going to convince ourselves that it doesn't matter if I take or not. As if God won't know. It's a failure to, to fear him, but and we're not going to honor people made in his image. We're not going to seek to protect the property of people made in his image. But if we're not trusting the Lord, then we're going to feel the need to take 
and we'll rationalize it that way. Students, those of you who are students, when you are tempted to cheat, are you saying, no one's going to know? Who cares? As if God doesn't know. That, that, that's, again, it's a failure to fear him. Or, or are, you saying, are you saying, I need to cheat. I need to do this in order to, 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 to protect my GPA, in order to secure that grade, because there's a lot on the line and if I don't get the grade I need, then I won't succeed. I need to do this because I'm unprepared, but, but this is my chance to, to protect myself. It's, it's a fear for your security because you're not trusting in the God who says, I'll take care of you. Lean on me. I'll take care of you. And, and your worth isn't found in your GPA anyway. Your worth isn't found in your grades. Your, and, and the God who says to you, your, your integrity is worth more than your GPA. Your integrity is much more valuable than your grade. All you hardworking folks out there, when you're tempted to underreport your income or you're tempted to cheat your employer in some way, or maybe you're tempted to, if you're in some kind of service industry, you're, you're tempted to overcharge for your services, or if you have employees, you're tempted to underpay them for the work that they do? What's driving that? What's driving that? Or, or even if you're, you're tempted to keep back from others what you should give, whether it's to keep back from the Lord or to keep back from your neighbors, what's driving that? I think this is a question worth asking. Is it, is it a failure to fear the Lord in that moment? A failure to honor him enough to honor those made in his image? Or is it a failure to trust him as father? To trust him as a father who, who's promised to give you everything you need so that you don't have to take, you don't have to withhold from others in order to protect your security. Your security is in him. What is it for you? Maybe it's both. You see why the Lord takes stealing so seriously. It's not only... Not only do we dishonor him and hurt others, we also damage ourselves. Because this, this kind of habit of taking what's not ours or keeping back what we should give, it prevents us from going to fear him and, and trust him the way that he wants us to. It keeps us from fearing him and trusting him the way that we need to. And so, and so he calls us to a better way. He says, I've got a, I've got a much better way for you to live, my people. So that's the last thing we have to look at. How do we heal? How do we heal or, or how do we stop stealing? In Ephesians 4, 28, we read these words from the Apostle Paul. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. These instructions are pretty clear, aren't they? Number one, stop stealing. Number two, work honestly, not, not to amass and hoard, but to share with, quote, anyone in need. This is the essence of the Eighth Commandment right here. It's the same. It's the Eighth Commandment. It's just expanded a bit to, to include that, that positive direction. Rather than just saying, don't steal, he's saying, stop the stealing and do the opposite. Start giving. And, and just like in Exodus, 
That, that command right here in Ephesians 4 only comes after God has told us about who he is and what he has done for us. So just like in the Ten Commandments, God begins by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Then he gives the commands. Paul does the same thing in Ephesians. He only tells folks to stop stealing and start living generously after he first spends a whole three chapters of his letter telling us what God has done for us, what God has done for thieves, what God has done for adulterers, what God has done for liars and all kinds of sinners. The Apostle Paul is talking to, 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 to Jesus' followers here. And, and let's look at what he says in Ephesians chapter 2. This is before he starts telling you how to live, before he says stop stealing and start living generously, he first says this. And you, followers of Christ, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, that means deserving God's wrath, like the rest of mankind. Pause there. He's saying, you were just like everybody else. We were just like everybody else. Enslaved to sin, to impulses that run contrary to God's will. But, verse 4, but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ, with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Paul is saying, you were once enslaved. You were dead, even. <laughs> you were robbed of life. You were robbed of direction. You were robbed of the ability to see and do what's right, just like the rest of the world. But God, the Lord, because he loves you, so deeply, he freed you from all that. He restored you. He gave you a new life in Jesus. You've been saved. You've been saved. And in verse 8, he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. You believed in Jesus, and you've been saved from living the way you used to live. And this is not your own doing it's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. For my money, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 is one of the most beautiful passages in the whole Bible. And at the end here, Paul is telling us that, that along with the salvation that you received, you received a new way to live. And the undeniable truth of this gospel is that it has set you on a, on a course toward good works. Good works. The, the, the gospel has empowered you for a new way of living. And that includes freedom and power to stop taking, to stop stealing, to stop keeping back from others what you should give to them. And instead, this gospel has empowered you to work honestly and to take the proceeds of that work and give and share 
with anyone in need. Yes, to take the proceeds of that work and meet your own needs. Yes, to take the proceeds of that work and enjoy it. No doubt. We don't, we don't have time to look at that today, but God wants us to enjoy the good gifts that he's given us. But also, also, and these are not mutually exclusive, to take the proceeds of what he has given us and use it to share, to give to others. The gospel drives us to be givers rather than takers. And we see this played out beautifully and, and dramatically in, in a scene that, that's known to most of us. It's a famous scene. It's in Luke 19. It's in a city called Jericho, and it involves Jesus and, and a man named Zacchaeus. You know a man named Zacchaeus, right? Many of you do. If you didn't grow up in Sunday school, you may not know who Zacchaeus is. Some of us who did grow up in Sunday school, we just know he was a little man. That's, that's what we always seem to remember about him. He was, he was, a, he was little. The poor guy should be known for so much more. He's only remembered for being little. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. The text says that he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And you might hear tax collector and think that's a respectable job, a government job. He's a public servant. No. Tax collector was not a, a, a respectable job. He was, in many ways, a gangster. He extorted his own people. And as a chief tax collector, he was in charge of other extorting gangsters who would take via threat and victimize their own people for the sake of the occupying power, Rome. Zacchaeus was, Zacchaeus was, was filling his pockets with the money of his people, with the money of God's people. He was filling his pockets with God's money. He used the authority of Rome to take from Jews whatever he wanted, and, and Jesus encounters him on this day in Jericho. But, but Jesus doesn't condemn him. Instead, Jesus says, I'm coming to your place today. In fact, he says, I must stay at your home today, Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus received him joyfully, the text says. And, and people all around were bothered by this. Here's a rabbi, Jesus, going into the house of someone who's been robbing us for as long as we can remember. This guy's living fat on our money. And Jesus is going to go in and sit down at his table and eat with him? That's our food. We don't know what Jesus said to Zacchaeus. Luke tells us nothing of what he said. But what he does tell us is this, verse 8. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. I give half of what I have to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone, anything, I restore I wonder if people there were like, if, Zacchaeus, if? Really? Oh, we can tell you about the ways you've defrauded us. And we're going to hold you to that commitment. To restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, verse 9, Today salvation has come to this house. How did he know salvation had come to that house? He says, since he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save 
the lost. This man, in that day in Jericho, experienced the saving power of the Lord. And this is how it affected him. This is what it did to him. He stopped stealing. He started giving. In fact, here's what repentance looked for. Initial, immediate repentance. I hope and I trust that he went on to live a life of generosity and honesty. But initial repentance right then and there, it looked like this. Restitution. Reparation. I need to give back what I took. That's the starting point. In fact, I need to give back more than I took. And then live a life of generosity. And Jesus, in response to what he sees, says, the saving grace of God has been here. Because only the saving grace of God does this. New Hope, Jesus is filled with grace for takers and cheaters. He has so much grace for takers and keepers and hoarders and stealers. He came for us, he says. And he gave up everything. Jesus let himself be robbed of his freedom. He let himself be robbed of his dignity, of his reputation. He let himself be robbed of his clothes even and his life. All, all so that he could give generously to us righteousness. So that he could share his inheritance with us, eternal life. Jesus gave and he gave and he keeps giving and he keeps giving and he says, receive from me, receive from me. Experience my generous love and it will transform you. If you have seen yourself today, as a taker, as a thief. Maybe not the worst, but, but, but a thief. Jesus is willing to come to your house. Jesus wants to come to your house. Receive him joyfully. Let's receive him joyfully, like, like Zacchaeus did, and embrace this opportunity to repent. Every time the Lord touches us in sensitive places and, and, and convicts us of areas in which we are not honoring him or we are not loving our neighbors, it's an opportunity to repent. And when Jesus was sitting in the house of Zacchaeus, he saw this as an opportunity like no other to repent. And so it is for us. An opportunity to pursue a new way of living by the power of Christ. And Jesus says to us, it's safe. It's safe for you to stop cheating. It's safe for you to stop amassing more than you need. If, you, if he can give you eternal life, certainly he's able to care for all your needs right here in this life, isn't he? And he will provide for his people. He promises us eternal lasting wealth. You know what he says in Luke 12, 33? He says he promises us a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. And so, if this is true, then you can afford to be honest with money and possessions. You can afford to be generous. What you can't afford is to continue stealing and taking and keeping back and you don't have to live that way. We do not have to live that way. The beautiful reality is that 
when we take the risk of trusting God, like trusting him enough to say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to seek to live a theft-free life in all its forms, as we start to share generously, even till it hurts, the beauty is we start to experience more and more of God's fatherly presence and his care. We start to see just how faithful he is. In the Eighth Commandment, he's inviting us into that. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for being robbed for us. Give us the grace to live as your people. Give us the grace to live as your people in a world that's marked by taking and cheating and scamming and just amassing more and more wealth. Let us live like people who've been provided for abundantly and have been free to give and to share. Make us a people who are attentive to the needs of others and generous to meet those needs. And Lord, if some of us have lost our way, if some of us have, have, have grown greedy and anxious and dishonest with what you've given us, remind us, Lord, that you came to seek and save the lost. Save us. We ask in your name. Amen.